Well, good morning. It's a thrill to be with all of you this morning to study the Word of God. <clears throat> I might get in trouble for this later on at home, but I want to live dangerously, so I'll go ahead and share. <clears throat> this, uh, yesterday, uh, Sir and Julian Kelly had the opportunity to go to uh, Sojourner's Bible Fellowship and teach the Word. My wife gave two sermons there. <clears throat> so on Friday night, you know, she was just studying, you know, uh, exegeting the Word of God and laboring to prepare her sermon notes together. And I kind of had, a, just kind of enjoyed just watching her <laughs> be anxious and burdened and stressful over uh, her preaching on Saturday morning. So I said to her, I think, numerous times, it's not easy, is it? <laughs> it's pretty difficult. And um, so every time she preaches, I think she deserves a renewed appreciation. And I think for all the flock shepherds as well, as you lead and teach, renewed appreciation of the preaching of the Word. It is an arduous task. It is a difficult thing. Um, every time I preach, I die a little bit. I really do. Uh, it is a spiritual battle, week in and week out, to study and, and, and understand and, and endeavor to teach accurately, faithfully, with passion, the Word of Christ. Um, at times, as I study and I preach, I'm in my room... Uh, with the Bible, with my commentaries, and with notes, and research, and I'm wondering if anybody understands what I'm saying, if anybody is understanding the teachings, and anybody benefits from the Word of God. But God's been really gracious through our study in John 15. I've heard from so many of you how God has used our study in John 15 to personally impact and transform, transform your lives. I've heard from your sharings and your words directly and indirectly, how you've been so blessed, so encouraged, and you've made concerted efforts to apply these teachings to the various areas of your life. And for that, I am truly thankful to the Lord. As I was fellowshipping with one brother, he was repeating to me verbatim things that were taught, things that were preached. And it so encouraged my heart because it just reminded me that you are indeed listening to the Word of God and endeavoring to live according to it. So, um, we just entrust this hour to you, and, and we entrust this hour to the Lord, that as we congregate around the Word of God, that the Word of God will be alive to you and to me, and that the Word of God will indeed be a fire, a hammer that breaks a rock into pieces, and it will cause all of us to conform to the image of Christ and be like Him in every way. Well, if you have your Bibles, please open them to John 15. Um, interestingly enough, today is uh, Palm Sunday. So, about 2,000 years ago, uh, John 12 occurred, and our Lord entered Jerusalem. Christianity is a historical faith and refers and based on historical events. And so, t- today commemorates uh, our Lord entering Jerusalem on a donkey. Now, this Thursday is when John 15 occurred. Privately gathered around his disciples, our Lord instructs them for the purpose of encouragement, for he knows that within a day he'll be crucified and he will leave them, and that they would be alone. So for that purpose, he gathers them in the upper room, and he instructs them for the last time. In order to set up the context of our message, uh, let me briefly review last week's study starting in verse 9. Verse 9 begins with the clear theme of Christ's great love for us. Just the sheer magnitude of Christ's love is delineated in verse 9. Our Lord says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. As the perfect Father has loved the perfect Son, in the same magnitude, in the same manner, Christ loves His disciples. What a great, um, a precious truth in just that one sentence of the uh, treasure we have received in Christ, His love for us. And then in the second part of verse 9, we see the mandate, we see the command that Christ gives to His disciples, Abide in my love. Continue. Remain. Be faithful to my love. And the question is, how do we do that? How do we remain, abide in the love of Christ? 
How does that work itself out? And Christ answers that question in the very next verse. Verse 10. If you keep my commandments, if you obey my words, this is how you abide in my love. And he says, let me give you an example. Let me give you a model of how this has taken place. And he points to himself. He says, look at my life. I have obeyed my Father's commandments. And that is how I remained in His love. Same with you. As you follow me, as you seek to remain in my love, do what I did. Obey my commands. And then the motivation is found in verse 11. Why should we follow Christ? Why should we obey God's commandments? And we studied last week that everybody is seeking joy. That the hunger and thirst in every human being in this earth is for happiness, is for satisfaction. The one word being joy. And Christ says, in this world you will not find joy. But you will find as you follow me and obey me, you will receive my joy. My joy will be in you and you will have it complete. And what is that joy? The joy of pleasing our Father. That is the true joy. That is the joy that satisfies. If you obey my commands, you will have it. You will have it in abundance and it will overflow in your lives. Well, that's the context that leads us to verses 12 through 17. Highly unlikely we'll get through all of that today. We'll get through up to verse 14 most likely. And today the central theme is, you are Christ's friend. You are Christ's friend if you obey this first command. To be a friend of Christ, um, we need to obey this first command of Christ. So in your outline is Roman numeral 1, the precept of Jesus to his friends. Precept is another word for command. I looked it up in the dictionary, a rule or principle prescribing a particular course of action or conduct. It's law, an authorized direction, an order. Verse 12, Christ says, this is my commandment. So again, previous verses. If you obey my commandments, you will abide in my love. And he reduces it here in verse 12 to one commandment. This is my first command. Love one another as I have loved you. It is repeated again in verse 17. It's like a love one another sandwich. Right? These things I command you so that you will love one another. This might sound familiar to you, especially if you've been listening to our study in the Gospel of John. You've been with us for over a year. Hey, Pastor James, we studied this on Sunday. I remember in John 13, 34, our Lord said, A new commandment I, I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. This is the third time, or three times in three chapters, our Lord commands us, disciples, to love one another. Why the repetition? Why such an emphasis? Right? Two reasons. It, the frequent repetition teaches us the absolute importance of this command. That it is crucial. Our Lord repeats this command now for the third time and He is emphasizing the weight and the seriousness of this precept of Christ. He heightens the importance by repetition. And secondly, the second reason He emphasizes so much, I believe, is that because He knows the heart of men. He knows us. He knows that Christians, a lot of pomp, you know, a lot of um, profession, and a lot of just outward passion will, in time, easily and often forget this command and will neglect to obey. He repeats it. Three times in the Gospel of John. Uh, repeats it again later on in different words in John 16 and 17. Uh, 
the beloved disciple was so impacted by this command that First John, Second John, and Third John is really a reiteration of this simple command. Because the Lord and the Apostle John, they understand full well that well-meaning Christians forget the first command of Christ, to love one another. And we would say that they are accurate, they are correct, will we not? If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you would say, yes, it is true. If you're a new Christian or if you've just come to our church, you wow, you know, everybody loves one another. You know, all Christians love fellow Christians. Utopia, it's heaven on earth. But you're a Christian for a few years, you've been at a cornerstone for a few more weeks, and <laughs> you realize well, that's not the case. That is not the case at all. In fact, there are far too many in our church and in the universal church who proudly confess to be a Christian, yet consistently and repeatedly neglect and disobey the central command of Christ. J.C. Ryle said, How anyone can pretend to Christian hope who is ignorant of Christian love, it is not hard to understand. He that supposes he is right in the sight of God because his doctrinal views are correct, while he is unloving in his temper, sharp, snappish, and ill-natured in his use of his tongue, exhibiting wretched ignorance, exhibits wretched ignorance of the first principles of Christ's gospel, the crossness, spitefulness, jealousy, maliciousness, and general disagreeableness of many high professors of Christ are a positive scandal to Christianity. Where there is little love, there can only be little grace. End quote. Our Lord repeats this command again and again and again because it is so important and because He knows the nature of our hearts that we are so prone to forget and neglect His command. You want to note that he, it is a new commandment. Um, some have called this the 11th commandment. The old commandment was... Love one another as you love yourself. That's not what Christ says here. It is a new commandment in that. Love one another as I have loved you. Love one another as I have loved you. And that is what distinguishes Christians from all others. That we love one another undeservedly, without limit, without condition, without any expectation of love in return. Unilaterally, we love one another, period. We give, we sacrifice, we offer up. And that's what marks us out as believers. We are not to be known by special rights or habits. Christians are not set apart by special dress, clothing, or jewelry. Christians aren't set apart because we have special dietary you know, restrictions right, or unusual customs. No, these are all marks of false religion. This is what man-made religion, that's the best they can do. They can't transform hearts, so they transform the externals for all men to see, but not Christians. Christians are set apart by our deep, genuine, and tender affection for one another. Our sacrificial, unconditional, and eternal love for fellow Christians is how we identify one another. That is how Christ is seen in the community of believers. How is Christ seen? By our love for each other. In fact, this kind of love does not exist in the world. They might see love in an individual sense, but still motivated by selfish interest. But they will rarely see, almost never see a group, a larger group of people genuinely loving one another. That's why it is such a powerful witness to the world. Our witness is not our authority, our power, it's not our building, it's not our affluence, it's not our programs or methods. What 
makes us powerful in this world is that we are a community that truly and earnestly cares for each other. Will Metzger said, <clears throat> quote, when, a, when Christians as a group get together, there is power. The world will know we are Christ's disciples by the love we display for each other. We should welcome unbelievers as observers in our fellowship communities where we speak not mere words, but we live out our concepts. When as an individual Christian, you show love to an unbeliever, he can always excuse you as an exception, but when he sees several Christians loving each other, treating each other with love, the power of such concurrent Christianity is powerful and it's much more undeniable. End quote. It is undeniable cannot be refuted. They might neglect and put aside our apologetics. They might undermine the surety of the Word of God. But when Christians sacrificially love one another, they can't say anything. Their, their mouths are shut. They put their hands to their mouths because it is so powerful. It is utterly irrefutable. The key to reach the lost is not the testimony of one bold, articulate preacher, but the culminative impact of seeing Christ in many people within one church. Is it not? Right. And that is one of the reasons why I'm so committed to Cornerstone Bible Church. That is why I've committed myself to love all of you. Because I know that when I'm out there in the world preaching the gospel, if there isn't a community of believers loving one another, then my testimony is weakened. My preaching is shallow. It's all mere words. But if, if I can go and preach about love that Christ has given to us, and then show them a community of believers living it out, then my preaching, my witness, is is buffeted, is strengthened, is held up high, likewise with all of you. It is an important command. It is a new commandment. It is what sets us apart. But how do we love one another? How are we to do this? Romans 12. Let's turn there and look at the eight one another's that are found in the last four chapters, last five chapters of the book of Romans. Eight one another is found in the last five chapters of one another. I, I, you know, praise God for Cornerstone. I really think that, uh, you know, almost all of us, if not all of us, there is a desire for us to love one another. Where we fall short is not the zeal, it's not the desire, but it's in the how-to, right? It's in the application where we fall short. And I've given this illustration many times before. It works, so I'll say it again. It's like when I first started dating Sarin, my first gift to her was a basketball, right? And so to show my, my affection for her, you know, the desire was genuine, but in the application of it, something disconnected, and I gave her a basketball. And so to recover from that, my second gift to her was basketball shoes <laughs> to go with the basketball, Right? So I think in, in many ways, that's like cornerstone. Because we're so young, we have zeal for one another, but we're giving each other basketballs and basketball shoes. We fall short and wisely loving one another. So Romans 12, that's why Paul gives us clear directions on how we are to love one another. And it's all in view of God's mercy. First of all, our love for one another must not be self-generated. It's not be manufactured out of uh, social reasons or, or even moral, goodness, moral reasons. All of our love should be a, a response to God's mercy to us. And we respond to God's mercy by loving one another. And in verse 10 he says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. That word devotion is talking about tender affection emotional care towards one another. We should, from our hearts, be devoted to one another, really care about fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Not only that, he says, honor one another above yourself. Honor is the idea of 
Tima in the Greek, the valuing of, of an object. So value your, the fellow Christian above yourselves. We're so prone to valuing ourselves over against everyone else, but no, as Christians, we value others above our very selves. Verse 16, live in harmony with, with one another. We seek peace. Right? That's how we uh, uh, love one another. Do not be proud. Do not be conceited. Verse 16, chapter 13, verse 8, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Right? The idea is, Christ gave us love that is undeserved. And then when we turn to one another horizontally, we don't approach it, oh, I'll give you undeserved love. You don't deserve my love. You're unworthy of it. But because I am so merciful, I am so gracious and kind and patient and forbearing, I will love you. Right? Even though you're so undeserving. That's not how we relate to one another. We receive undeserving love, but as we turn to one another, we consider a debt. You have legal right to my love. In fact, you are deserving. If a debtor comes to our house and says, hey, overdue, give, give me back my money. Right? You go to a court of law and says, yes. Right? You have a debt you need to pay. Likewise, that is our attitude towards one another. When I give you love, it is not undeserved love. No, it is deserved love. I owe you a debt legally before the sight of God. My affections, my concern, my compassion, my mercy, and what I give to you is what you deserve. Right? Chapter 14, 13. Let us stop passing judgment on one another. Avoiding legalism. There are disputable matters within in the Christian life. Right? And there are so many, I mean, you guys know, right? Just music and clothing and, I don't know, hairstyle and whatever. You know, sports, right? Don't pass judgment on one another on these issues. Right? That's how we love one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. Instead, commit yourself to personal holiness. Instead, resolve in your heart to follow Christ. Right? Don't worry about disputable matters of your, uh, you know, flock members or church members or church leaders in a sense, worry about yourself and resolve to be an example and set a high bar of holiness and righteousness. That's how we love one another. Verse 19, So, so then let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. That's how we love one another. Seeking peace. Striving for peace. Trying to edify and build up fellow Christians. Chapter 15, verse 7, accept one another. Simple, simple, right? Don't be exclusive in your fellowship. Don't be exclusive in your heart. Just a Christian, open your heart. Open your fellowship. Open your friendships and be inclusive. Accept people. Sacrificially give and serve one another in this way. 15.14, admonish one another. Admonish, rebuke, correct, exhort one another. Here is Ephesians 4, speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. That's how we love one another. And just to kind of tag, uh, tag on this a little bit, but speak the truth to us, to your leaders. Tell us the truth about our church, about our ministry, about our our direction. Don't tell us what we want to hear. Don't just praise us and encourage us. If you love us, you will tell us the truth about the church, about us, about ministry, about your life. Tell us the truth. And then finally, Romans 16, 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. And so again, it's culturally tied there, right? The principle is eternal and universal. Uh, the actual command is tied to the culture and the whole hermeneutical issue is for another sermon. But trust me, it's not a literal kiss, right? Trust me. If you want to practice that amongst yourself, I'm not going to judge you on disputable matters. But with, with me or just good firm handshake, good like side to side, you know, hug is, is all good, right? 
for Christians. This is how we glorify the Lord. This is how we are set apart. This is how we obey Christ's command. Not by wearing symbols. Not by practicing mindless rituals. Not by a certain form of godliness. But by simply loving one another. This is the internal commitment that exists in all true Christians. This is the internal commitment that exists in all true Christians. And finally, Christ here in verse 12, he, said, he has set for us, verse 13, the, the highest standard for our love for one another. That's why this is a new commandment. Previously, it was love one another as, I, as you love yourself. He has raised the standard. Love one another as I have loved you. He points to himself. Our Lord has set the example, the highest example for us, the highest model says it in verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. Period. Greatest love you'll find someone laying down his life for his friends. Who is he talking about? He's talking about himself. He's talking about, and he's maybe 12 to 18 hours before the cross. He says, I'll show you love. You'll see it with your own eyes. You won't have to look far. You'll see it as I hang on the cross. My love for you. There is no greater love than what Christ revealed on the cross. To see the depth of His love for us, we need to look at the ugliness of the cross. What a degrading insult it was. What a humiliating thing. What a accursed thing for someone in that culture and society to be crucified. It was a horrific form of capital punishment. The condemned on the cross died an agonizing slow death of suffocation, gradually becoming too exhausted and traumatized to pull himself up by the nails or to push himself on the nail through his feet enough to take a deep breath of air. They died by suffocation. Crucifixion was a repugnant the, the worst, the most demeaning form of death. It was so demeaning that the Roman government said that Roman citizens were exempt from crucifixion. It was too beneath. Even the most, the worst criminal in, uh, to, that a Roman citizen could ever commit was not enough for him to be crucified. The authorities reserved the cross for rebellious slaves and conquered people only. The Romans used it only for the scum, the most humiliated, the lowest of the low. For the Jewish people, the cross represented a double stigma because not only was it a social disgrace, but it was also considered a divine curse. Because the Old Testament said, cursed is the man who hangs in a tree. So they saw the person on the cross not just cursed by man, but, but cursed by God. The cross is indeed one of the ugliest ways of death, if not the ugliest, and that is how Christ laid His life down. He willingly, he voluntarily agreed on not just the death, but on the mode of death, crucifixion. Jesus, who was so undeserving of the sufferings he faced, was crucified on the cross. Oh, what an ugly sight the cross is. But that is the backdrop. From our perspective, Every disgraceful, humiliating, ugly mark on the body of Christ is a loud declaration to us of His great love. Great love for God and great love for us. And that's what Christ said. Greater love is no one than this, that He should lay down His life for His friends. That's how I have loved you. So, love one another in this way. Meaning, a selfless way. Self-sacrificing. Self-denying kind of love. Limitless love. To the point of death. I mean, this is is amazing. There is to be no limitation in our love for one another. No limit. 
if occasion requires it, we are to be ready to lay down our life for one another. No limit. We can't say, oh, you're asking too much. Right? That's above and beyond the call of Christ to my life. No, Christ didn't say that. Christ gave His life. You can't give anything more. What if somebody you know, gave you a, a, a cell phone? Wow, that's, that's great. Somebody gave you a brand new car. Their car, they give it to you. Right? A $20,000 car, are you going to give it to me? Right? What if they give you their house? Right? Three-bedroom house, they give it to you. Right? They can always give you more. When someone gives you their life, it's everything. Everything that contains within their lives, life. And that's what Christ did for us. And that is how we are to love one another. Sacrificially, selflessly, and without limit. 1 John 3.16 Apostle John understood this. He understood it. By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Incredible. Incredible. Well, Christ just said in verse 13, Greater love has no one than this, that He lays down His life for His friends. Now, who are His friends? There is a sense of the teaching of limited atonement here, that Christ died only for His friends. Who are His friends? Verse 14, You are My friends, if you do what I command you. Our Lord is coming full circle. Love one another, He commands, as I have loved you. Whom have I loved? Those whom I lay down my life for. Who are they? Those who obey my commands. What is my first command? Love one another. It is all connected. All connected. Simply put, you are a friend of Christ. If you love fellow Christians, if you love fellow believers, this is, I would, I would say, the test of our discipleship. Love of fellow believers is the surest sign of spiritual life and spiritual maturity. Right. Do you doubt your salvation? Do you wonder if you're a Christian or not? The first place to look is, do I love Christians? Do I love the church? Do I love fellowship? Do I care for fellow believers? That is the first test. He that cannot or will not love fellow believers is not only disobeying the Lord, but very well be a sign that he or she is not a friend of Christ. This is the first and ultimate test of discipleship. Turn with me to John's first epistle, 1 John. You know, people go to 1 John 5, 11, and 12, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life in His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you that you may know that you have Son of, that you might, that you may know that you have the Son of God. And they use that as a proof text for assurance of salvation. They go to chapter 5, 11 through 13, but they they neglect chapters 1 through 4. Chapter 5, 11, 13 is the culmination of the first four chapters. And so in the first four chapters, John outlines the subjective fruits of a true believer, the subjective marks of a true Christian. And then he culminates with the objective assurance experienced by true believers. So look at the mark of true salvation. 1 John 2, 7-11. The new commandment, beloved, I am writing to you, is no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in Him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. 1 John 2.9 Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother. And it's not only just active hate, but a passive hatred. There's no concern. right? No empathy, no affection. You know, I just... Really couldn't care less. His heart is unmoved by fellow believers. Well, whoever says he's in the light, yet experiences this, is still in darkness. 
Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because darkness has blinded his eyes. Next chapter, chapter 3, 11 through 18. Love one another. This is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother is righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life. We know this. How? Because we love the brethren. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Hates him in his heart. So killed him in his heart. Matthew 5. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love again, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Go down to verse 23, and this is his commandment. Our Master's precept that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Just as He has commanded us, whoever keeps His commandments abides in Him and He in them. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. Verse 21, And this commandment we have from Him, whoever loves God must also love His brothers. Loves His brother. A simple command. Simple instructions here. Simple uh, and clear reasoning behind our Lord's commands and instructions. The Christian life, the challenge is not in the knowing, but in the doing, right? C.S. Lewis said Christianity is not tried and found lacking, but tried and found difficult. The challenge of the Christian life is not knowing this truth. I don't think there was a single person in this room that didn't know we're to love one another, right? Oh, there's anyone here. Wow. Learn something new every day. I've been here at Cornerstone for five years. I had no idea. I was supposed to love this guy. Right? I'm glad I know now. Right? There's hope for me. No, we all know to love one another. But the difficulty is in the obedience of this simple command. We have received this great mercy from Christ, this great love from Christ undeservedly. But it is a great challenge for us to turn to one another and love one another as Christ loved us. Now the question is, why is it so difficult for us to obey this command? Why? You ever think about that? You ever search your heart? You ever go to God, test my thoughts, see if there's any offensive way within me, Psalm 139, and ask God, God, why is it so hard for me to forgive my fellow brother or sister in Christ? Why is it so hard for me to care and love and be sacrificial? Why do I rage against this? What heart condition do I have, spiritually speaking, that makes this so difficult for me to obey? It rages against this commandment. I mean, in a sense, there is emotion, there is affection, there is some amount of empathy But what is it in our hearts that makes it so difficult for us to carry it out and to really genuinely, consistently, faithfully love one another? Do you have any answers? Thought about this? What's wrong with me? Why am I so negligent of this command? I believe I have found the root cause. I've diagnosed your heart. How? By diagnosing my heart. Looking at the Word of God, and I found the root cause of why we fail to obey this command. The one word is selfishness. Selfishness. Being selfish. Being self focused. Being self centered. Two pastors have helped me to understand how selfishness is the root cause of our failure to obey this simple command. Lengthy quotes, but 
I think it's better in our time to listen to them than to listen to me. So I'll just quote them at length. Pastor A.B. Simpson said, Selfishness is high treason against the throne of God. It sets up another God instead of Him. The one you seek to please, the one whose will you uniformly obey, the one whose interests you supremely, supremely seek, that is your God. Selfishness is the worship of man and worse than the worship of humanity. It is self-worship. It is blasphemy. It is rebellion against the throne of God and it will bring upon your head the damning curse of a God of love. You that want your way about things, that think the universe was made for your convenience and comfort, and that fret and fly into a passion because things don't go your way, you are arch-rebels against the king of love and will go down with Satan, your king, to the rebel's doom. Pastor Richard Baxter, a far longer quote, but really beneficial. He wrote years, centuries ago, the principal part of selfishness consists in an inordinate self-love. This is a corruption so deep in the heart of man that it may be called his very natural inclination. This must be changed into a new nature which consists principally in the love of God. This is original sin itself, even the heart of it. This speaks what man by nature is, a self-lover. In this, all other vice in the world is virtually contained. Every man is an idolater so far as he is selfish. Now selfish, ungodly men do all of them rob God and give His honor and prerogatives to themselves and put Him off with empty titles. They call Him God, but will not have Him for their end, nor their portion and happiness, nor give Him the strongest love of their hearts. They will not take Him as their absolute owner. They will not take Him for their sovereign and be ruled by Him, nor deny themselves for Him, nor seek His honor and interest above their own. They call Him their Father, but deny Him His honor. They call Him their Master, but do not give Him His fear. They depend not on His hand, live not by His law, nor to His glory. Therefore, they do not take Him as their God. No man can be a Christian that takes not Christ for his Lord and Savior. And no man without this self-denial can take Christ for his Lord and Savior. And therefore, no man without self-denial can be a Christian and be saved. He that makes himself his end cannot make Christ as Christ his way, for Christ is the way to the Father and not to the carnal self. No, the business that Christ came upon into the world was to pull down and subdue self. Moreover, whoever takes Christ for his Savior must know from what it is that he must save him, and that is principally from self. No man can take Christ for his Savior that does not renounce his own self-confidence and is not willing to be saved from the idolatry of self-exaltation. No man can take Christ for his master or teacher that comes not into his school as a little child, renouncing the guidance of carnal self and sensible of his need of a heavenly teacher. Listen to this. No man can take Christ for his King and Lord and give up himself to Him as his own and as his subject that has not learned to deny that self that claims priority and sovereignty in His place. Every woman, every man and woman on earth that take themselves for true Christians and yet do not deny themselves, even life and all for the sake of Christ, are mere self-deceivers and no true Christians at all. It is impossible for that man to be Christ's disciple that loves his life more than Christ. I beseech you, remember, this is the lowest degree of self-denial that is saving. We must habitually resolve to forsake life and all 
rather than to forsake Christ. Whether you love an immortal holy life with God or this earthly fleshly life better is the great question on which it will be resolved whether you are a Christian or infidel at the heart. Whether you are heirs, heirs of heaven or hell. End quote. Selfishness. That word contains all of our sins. And in that, we either worship ourselves or we worship Christ. That is why Christ came. He came to save us from sin. And the principal sin is our worship of ourselves. But if we profess Christ, but continue to worship ourselves through selfishness, then we must question whether we are truly followers of Christ. Selfishness is a cardinal state of the unregenerate. The one who is self-absorbed and self-obsessed cannot love others. Not only that, he cannot love Christ. If he says he loves Christ, he loves Christ for his own ends. Right? He loves Christ for his own agenda, for his own purposes, for his own pride. Selfishness is contrary to divine law. It is present even among the leaders of the church. I wrestle with whether I should read this letter or not. But just to show you that I'm preaching to myself, will show that read this one church leader's letter and this leader's rebuke of a pastor and his wife and how the pastor, the leader, found selfishness in this pastor. And so selfishness, this idolatry, is present among leaders, even among leaders as well. This is what this letter said, quote, Two years ago, I saw that you and your wife were both very selfish, grasping persons. Your own selfish interests were dearer to you than souls for whom Christ died. One of the greatest curses of your life, brother, has been your supreme selfishness. You have been figuring for your own advantage. Both you and your wife have made yourselves the center of sympathy and attention. When you go to a place and into a family, you throw your whole weight upon them. You let them cook for you and wait upon you. And neither of you seeks to do as much work as you make. The family may be toiling hard, bearing their own burdens and yours, but you are both so selfish that you cannot see that they are worn out, that you are both physically better able than they to perform the labor which they do for you. Brother, you are too indolent to please God. When wood or water is needed, you do not know it. And you let these be brought by those who are already overworked and frequently by females. When these little errands, these courtesies of life, are what you should be performing, the indolence you manifest, and the disposition to grasp everything whereby you may be advantaged, has been a reproach to the truth and a stumbling block to unbelievers. Your wife, as well as you, loves her ease. You have thought that because you are a minister, they should consider your presence a favor and should wait upon you and favor you while you had nothing to do but to care for your own selfish interests. The impressions which you have given have been very bad. Those who are acquainted with your course will say that your profession, your teachings, and your life do not agree. They see that your fruits are not good and decide that you do not, you do not believe the things you teach to others. Brother, you are troubled with feelings and impressions which are the natural fruit of selfishness. You imagine that others do not appreciate you and do not appreciate your labors. You are jealous of others and therefore you have hindered the progress of the gospel, doing but little yourself and hindering those who work for the Lord." Your sensitiveness and jealousy have weakened the hands of those who have set things in order and bring up the work. You are naturally stubborn. Jealousy and stubbornness are the natural fruits of selfishness. God has been dishonored by your littleness. 
selfishness is the root cause why we struggle to obey the simple command to love one another. It is contained. All our sins are contained in selfishness and it is not just found in brand new Christians. It is found even among church leaders, even among pastors. For our remaining time, let's take a closer look at this monster called selfishness. I do this from time to time. And uh, highlight to you some symptoms, some practical symptoms of selfishness. Maybe you go through this in your mind, in your life. Don't, let's not look at our brothers and sisters. Let's not look at our husbands or wives, right? Let's look at ourselves to see if we have these symptoms of selfishness. Pattern of not helping out. Pattern of not helping others. Maybe you live with your parents and you should see your dad as a bank. You see your mom as dishwasher, laundromat, maid, cook, taxi driver, and you see yourself as the guest. You don't help around the house. You don't do any work. You don't contribute to the needs of the family. Right? Your parents or your wife or husband exist for you and yourself alone. And what about flock? You go to flock and you overstay your welcome. Right? I mean, the hosts are gracious and kind. They're tired. A long week of ministry. And you want to just hang out and have fun and just overstay your welcome. You come empty-handed. Well, your turn to bring snacks. It's like whatever you can pick up, fast food on the way. Little as possible. When you, it's your turn to eat, you complain that there's not enough food or not enough good food. You come late, leave early, and you don't clean up. Right? You don't even clean up after yourself. You make a mess and you just leave. Or you don't stay around to help, to clean the house, clean the household. Right? Or other meetings. You always just come empty-handed, expecting from others. What about at church? Your attitude is all about you. People meeting your needs, catering to you, serving you, ministering to you. When people bump into you and fellowship with you, you're just taking. You're always receiving. And you don't encourage. You don't minister. You don't serve. Repeatedly, when people fellowship with you, you're the one just taking, 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 and not contributing, not giving, not sacrificing. What about in conversation? Symptom of selfishness is talking too much. You just dominate the conversation. You just love to talk and you don't listen. You don't listen to others. You interrupt others while they're speaking. Right? Because you want to talk. You control dialogue to your, and then you purposely, consciously or subconsciously, unconsciously, drive that conversation to your favorite topic, which is yourself. Right? Wherever the conversation is, you move it to what you want to talk about yourself. So you talk about your job, right? your hobbies, your entertainment, your life, your interests, yourself. Um, saying things that are discouraging saying things that are inconsiderate just outright rude no tact no wisdom like man you don't say those things right that's not proper well you're so like just self-obsessed that you don't have no consideration for others so you just foolish things just spew out of your mouth it's rude fruit of selfishness about being a picky person being a picky eater, right? That's a symptom of selfishness. You are miserly, stingy, parsimonious, right? Stingy to others, but you are generous and open-hearted to yourself, right? When you give to the church, give to others, give to your family, even your husband or wife, you battle in your heart. Man, five dollars, right? Ten dollars for this gift or this meal or the service and you count every penny but when you give to yourself you're just generous right? buying yourself clothes jewelry electronic toys you know food man you're just I'm such a generous person I'm so open hearted and big hearted to yourself right? but to others you're tight fisted being overly sensitive about yourself while being exceedingly insensitive 
to others. And this is, man, this is so true. Right? This is all, almost always found. If you're hypersensitive about people offending you, almost always, generally speaking, the converse exists. You're insensitive about offending others. It's like playing basketball, and I'm guilty as well, right? You know, you foul others, and they call foul, and you're like, come on, man, what foul? Right? Come on. And when somebody touches you, foul, right? You're very sensitive about being fouled, but when you cause foul, hey, come on. I, I barely felt you, right? On the court, you know, that's one thing, right? Come on, right? Come on, brothers. But in life, it's completely different, right? Selfishness. These are but small sample of selfishness in all its forms. It represents the heartless and self-centered spirit that absorbs all the blessings of life to self and neither thinks nor cares about the needs and sufferings of others and ultimately results in disobedience to Christ, resulting that you might think Christ is your friend, but Christ will say, you're not my friend. I don't know you. My first command, forget about fifth command or twelfth command or eightieth command, you're not my friend because you don't obey my first commandment. What is the cure? It is not, you know, it's not vacuum. It's the law of replacement. The cure for selfishness is to love others. Right? It's not to be just selfless and try to just to go against being selfish. The cure is to radically love others. Right? That's the cure. That's the spiritual battle. Right? We all we're all selfish. And this is oppressive. But if we love Christ, we'll fight that battle to love others, to mortify sin, and to obey Christ's commandment, to love one another as I have loved you. Philippians 2, 3 and 5. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, you obey this. You love one another as Christ loved you. You will be God's friend. You will be Christ's friend. You will enjoy the sweet, intimate, satisfying, joy-filled relationship with Christ. You will be called a friend of God. All right? Do it not, and this will be absent from your life. But do it, and you'll be God's friend. Pray. Oh Lord Jesus Christ, you speak to us uh, louder than just through words. You, you speak to us by your example. As we even take communion later on this afternoon, we're reminded that you said these things. You talk the talk, but you walk the walk. You, um, you, you gave your life in the most humiliating, sacrificial way. Death, death on the cross to uh, show us the genuineness of your love for us. Oh God, we are so prone to be selfish and selfishness is so deceptive. Even in our concern for our own sanctification, it becomes all about our prayer lives, our word life, our evangelism, our walk. And it's all about us and all about me rather than seeing um, that it's you and us, that our response to your love is first and foremost to be abiding in you by obeying your command and your commandment being loving one another. Oh Lord, grant us grace in this area. We can blame our culture and blame our, even our upbringing and say 
We are a selfish generation, possibly the most selfish generation that have ever existed on this earth. So Lord, we need so much more of your grace that we would be marked out as a church because of our love for one another. It would not be preaching, it would not be our programs, it would not be anything of our church, but what would stand out is how we glorify you by our just genuine love for one another. In Jesus' name we pray.